This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Matthew Thomas, author of the novel We Are Not Ourselves, which was named a Notable Book of the Year in 2014 by the New York Times. We Are Not Ourselves tells the story of first-generation Irish-American Eileen Tumulty's youth in Queens, marriage to scientist Ed Leary, and her pursuit of the American dream. Eileen's consistent desire is to always want more, a better job, better house, and better friends. But as her husband Ed becomes more reclusive and odd, her challenges deepen. Matthew Thomas was born and raised in New York City and studied writing at Johns Hopkins University and University of California at Irvine. We began the interview by discussing the title of his debut novel, We Are Not Ourselves. When I read the title, We Are Not Ourselves, I read it, I can read it with two two ways, with the emphasis on the not and the emphasis on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering about how you read the title, what you want it to evoke, and how you came up with it. Oh, it's a great question. I have a lot of things in mind with that title. I, I guess the hope with something like a title is that uh, it'll resonate at all with anyone. And then you hope that it might resonate in the ways that you hope it will. But um, you hope it'll resonate, period. And first of all, it comes from Lear. I had been working with a, another title at one point, uh, and when I was teaching that book again, I found this phrase that Lear says to describe basically why somebody he has he has bidden to appear has not appeared. And the explanation is in the body, uh, that when we're sick, we're not ourselves, basically. Uh, the things that we're required to do when we're, when we're healthy are not, we are not really required to do when we're when we're ill, effectively. Uh, but it just seemed evocative for me of so much of what was going on in my book. And I think the manifest level in which that title is operating is the idea that these characters are not allowed to be themselves, that they are not, that they're kind of off kilter, that they're knocked for a loop by experience. And so they are not themselves. But that's not necessarily the only way I want it to resonate. Another immediate way for me uh, that it resonates is that these characters and all of humanity, really, I hope, uh, I'm, I hope I'm saying in this book is is not themselves alone. That we are, exist in community with each other. That we need each other to be fully alive. That our relationships are the unit in which we are, our lives are best measured. We are not only ourselves, effectively. And then another way that it resonates for me is is the idea that these characters are always coming into being. That they are they're never fully themselves. That they're in some way that I think is hopeful, um, not themselves yet that there is some growth to be done, even late growth, even after it might seem impossible that one could grow, which I hope to suggest with Eileen at the end of the book. There's room for learning, ultimately, which is Ed's preoccupation in life, the the idea that we can learn, that we can evolve. So we are not ourselves just quite yet, and that isn't a bad thing either, necessarily. And, and, And also, finally, I think we are not reduced to the selves that we appear to be in the world in a way that there's a there's a kind of uh, realm of ideals there's a realm of the imagination there's a set there's a self that we want to be in our minds that we we can be in a sense even when the world uh, even when the self that we are in the world doesn't demonstrate that that there's that if you take somebody just the at the at the raw materials of their uh, empirical existence uh, and 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 say that this is who they are that that's a, a kind of violence to do to the person um that there's a kind of potential in people 
always that isn't really necessarily achieved, maybe at any point in the life. I mean, this is a question I find fascinating. If you have a sense of yourself uh, and it never actually comes true, was it not true all along? You know, Eileen, obviously, this comes into being with, in Eileen uh, in, this, in, in the way that she has a vision for her life that may never come true. Does it mean that it wasn't a real thing? Does it mean that it wasn't actually a part of her existence, that she thought about this all the time? Ed, Ed brings this out, I think, explicitly in the conversation he has with Connell at, at, at Cooperstown, where he's asking him to find a place in the imagination where these things are real, where, where there, it is possible that he could have been a, a major league ball player. What is, the, what is the realm that we get into in our minds that is not limited to the material plane? And is that a real existence as well? Um, is that not also in some way material? Those are the questions I wanted to ask uh, in this book, and those are some of the ways I wanted that title to resonate. So if those were the questions that you were asking when this book was a little tiny speck of an idea in your mind in terms of the notions and themes that you wanted to explore, did you end up starting there, or did you start with a character? In the... No, yeah. You, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I could do it. and Maybe someone could do it, but I don't know that it would be possible for me to start with anything but a character or a sentence, uh, a scene, a sentence, really. Um, I try to write it out of uh, uh, respect for individual sentences and, and let them accrete and let meaning accrete in the way that they, they are juxtaposed. So I had a, I mean, the first thing I wrote in the book was actually a scene in which a character who became Eileen is, is preparing for a surprise party for her husband because she uh, wants to help to knock him out of his torpor. And it it is a scene that eventually became a part of the book in a different form. Uh, one of the first things I wrote was was that was that party, uh, and I once I had a sense of who these characters were. It, they really just began to come out of the ether for me, relatively fully fully formed in that in that initial version of this story. Once I had a sense of who they were, I stopped and I went back to the beginning because I I. I knew that if I was going to write about Alzheimer's in the story, that I would want it to have an emotional impact on the reader that would be stronger than would be possible if it were just presented in in the in in the in the form of something that comes to someone um, who, whom we don't really know very well yet. And uh, that is, I didn't really want to dive into the middle of it in Medias Res in any way because I knew that it would not it would not uh, ring with the same authority if I didn't pre- present a picture of, of an entire life. And then what actually happened was I realized that the character that I needed to follow was Eileen and not Ed, because I, I for a couple of reasons, I became really interested in this character, uh, Eileen. And I also understood that the um, the best way to write about this experience of Alzheimer's was to do it uh from the perspective of someone looking in on the outside, even even someone who is as intimate as a spouse, because there's something so inscrutable and unknowable about the mentality of someone going through this illness that it seemed to be uh, that the form could follow function if I gave the perspective of of, of someone very close but not the sufferer. Um, and I guess I wanted to, in a way, kind of absorb the, the lesson from Gatsby, which is that Gatsby was would have been a far different book had it been written from from Gatsby's perspective. That Nick Carraway being the narrator there is really central to that book's success. Uh, if Eileen was a point of view character, I think the what happens to Ed eventually would resonate a lot, loud, a lot more loudly. 
But what happened, and I mean, those were just initial decisions. What eventually happened was that I realized that this just became uh, the story of Eileen's entire life. And my initial ideas for what this story would be changed so much because I just started following this character around, became increasingly interested in her, fascinated by her, saw opportunities in writing about her to write about American women in the second half of the 20th century and the, the shaping of civilization that they did as a, as a generation. It just started to seem obvious that this was the, the story, much more Eileen's story than I initially had understood it to be. So you have a personal experience with early onset Alzheimer's. Your father had it. What were the standout moments of watching that disease take your dad that you incorporated into the novel? Oh, it's a great question because so much of the book in terms of uh, actual scenes and plot never happened. Um, and yet there's a way in which it's utterly written from life. It's one of those interesting tensions that emerge when you're writing a uh, a novel that's autobiographical or semi-autobiographical. The, uh, the relationship between the material of, of the lived life and uh, the story you're telling. Um my book eventually became a good, uh, uh, you know, a, a good story when I stopped writing the story of my life and my family's life. In fact, things improved radically after I lost fidelity to the facts, as it were. But and yet, obviously, there are going to be scenes that um, were more autobiographical than others. It's easier for me to think of the ones that aren't. Uh, I never threw a ball at my father and knocked him down. <laughs> I never, uh, my father and I never went to Cooperstown and had a conversation like that, like the one Ed and Connell have. I mean, there are so many things that never happened in this book, and yet um, I did take care of my father physically, and I did have to clean him. And I don't know, I don't know that I could have written a scene where where Connell has to shower his father if I hadn't experienced that myself a few times. You know, I I never went and watched my father teach, uh, and so I never saw him before class. Uh, but I did have, um, I did drive around with him a lot in the car, and I did experience what it was like to be his passenger, and uh, the terror of that. And I, I, I put that in Eileen's perspective, uh, being aware of Ed's driving. Um, but uh, I don't know that I would have been able to do to 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 know what it feels like to be scared to be in the car if I hadn't been scared to be in the car. So there's, I mean, there's there's a lot that the imagination can do, uh, but experience is a really wonderful tutor as well. You know, when I read this book, I didn't really read anything about it. I had no idea what it was about. Mm-hmm. So when he first started acting like weird and crazy, I didn't know what was wrong with him. Do you want people to know that um, going into it, what the book is about, or do you like it? better when they have no idea no i i I like it better when they don't know yeah so maybe i i gave the game away in talking about it but um now that the cat's out of the bag i guess we can talk about it i i wrote it so that they wouldn't i mean i uh, i wrote it so that they wouldn't know and i also wrote it toward uh an a kind of anagnoresis moment where in that classical greek sense there's a, a, a kind of lifting of the scales from the eyes and suddenly Oedipus sees everything all of a sudden. Um, I wanted it to dawn on the reader. I tried to write it so that it would be, um, it wouldn't be obvious uh, the whole time, and then and then suddenly it would be it would be obvious that it was obvious all along, just as it was for Eileen. Um, so no, I, I wrote it toward 
a revelation. And uh, I was very happy with the way the conversation went around the book. And Simon Schuster was uh, willing to and interested in, in suppressing that story. You know, the information about that is not in the dust jacket or anything like that. So um, I had made, you know, taken a lot of pains artistically to try to build toward uh, something of, of of a suspense and something of um, a revelation, and you know, it was great for me that it wasn't ultimately uh, spoiled. That having been said, Eileen is a career nurse who knows this stuff really well. Knows, uh, I think, ultimately how to diagnose. Let's say almost as well as a doctor would, if not as well. And uh, uh, it was a high wire act. I think that uh, I hope I pulled off to try to convince the reader that this woman wouldn't see this going on in her life at home. And, and uh, maybe it, it, one could object to her um, not seeing it earlier, but I tried to suggest in her inability to see that Ed has Alzheimer's until she knows that he does, that we don't really want to see these things. Uh, we'd like to keep this stuff buried. One of the things about your novel is there is great detail just about a day. An example might be details about Ed fixing up an old house they bought and working on the bricks on the floor or just really small pieces of their life in great detail. Was that a conscious thing that you were working towards or was that just your style? It was more of a conscious decision. Um, I think style emerges out of practice, ultimately. Uh, maybe it emerges out of uh, instincts and and predilections uh, and, and whatever tropisms you have toward certain ways of writing. But I did decide, I think, to try to write a book in which the quotidian would dominate. And um, I wanted, uh, uh, almost above all else, to avoid melodrama. And what I, what I mean by that is just... Uh, Anything that would happen in the book that would wouldn't really happen in a life that I could recognize as as human. I always find myself so disappointed when a, a book that is steaming along in a way that is uh, just extraordinarily moving and persuasive takes a turn for the quirky or the fabulous. And 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 I don't mean to say that I and I love fabulous books actually, but when when a book is in a certain mode or a certain key. It breaks the rules it sets for itself. I uh, I get really frustrated, and and I often find that this happens. I think for in some books, in the service of incident and in the service of uh, excitement. And I guess I wanted desperately to avoid uh, artificial excitements in this book. And I I think one of the ways that I did that was was to try to establish the, the, a footing in the reality that these people ex- existed in. And that meant uh, a, the compilation of detail as much as I I could pre- present without it uh, becoming a kind of overwhelming compendium, that there would be respect paid to just the, the, the you know, the fabric of their reality. Um, and... Uh, and so, you know, it was, it, this book would never, was never going to have Ed flinging himself down the stairs to try to take himself out or something extraordinarily melodramatic like that. And so I guess what I'm saying is the, the small uh, details of the daily lives of these characters became, I guess, for me, the, the dramatic engine. And if I could work compellingly in, in that small mode um, and, and accrete 
those scenes in a way that would be compelling to the reader and make the reader want to turn the page because so much attention has been paid to these small things um, th- that, you know, there would become eventually a story in that. And it would be, um, it would just, it would be like the story of a life. And I hoped that that would be enough to keep uh, readerly attention. Well, let's talk about some of your influences. I'm wondering if you could read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. The very beginning of Gatsby, which is first person, and so it may not sound like it influenced me because the third person and how different they are, but certainly the way that he writes this uh, influenced my thinking. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person. And so it came about that in college I was unjustly accused of being a politician because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. What I like about that is the the fluency with which uh, Fitzgerald has Carraway painting a, uh, uh, a portrait of a relationship to a father and a relationship to a self in which there's uh, self-consciousness about who this person is, who Nick sees himself as being, how he relates to others, and a, uh, a, something of a, of a, of a sophisticated uh, presentation of self in which there's a kind of filtration that's being done of the self and a way that the self is being presented as, as being this way and not that way. Uh, ultimately, that that mindset i think of of um uh in which in which a kind of character or a narrator is uh shaping the world for you in a very explicit way that's something that i think influenced my my writing because if you allow a narrator to just take liberties and shape things on purpose and not have it just be uh um you know, a lot of raw materials that aren't shaped for the reader. If you if you are willing to to kind of go in certain directions on purpose, I think the reader is is happy to invest faith in that narrator. I'm wondering if you can read a short passage from something you wrote that maybe it was hard to write, or something that changed from the first draft, or something you feel you succeeded at. I definitely wrote about 120 drafts of the prologue, the one-page prologue at the beginning. His father was watching the line in the water. The boy caught a frog and stuck a hook in its stomach to see what it, what, it, what it would look like going through. Slick guts clung to the hook and a queasy guilt grabbed him. He tried to sound innocent when he asked if he could fish with frogs. His father glanced over, flared his nostrils, and shook the teeming coffee can at him. Worms spilled out and wriggled away. He told him he'd done an evil thing and that his youth was no excuse for his cruelty. He made him remove the hook and hold the twitching creature until it died. Then he passed him the bait knife and had him dig a little grave. He spoke with a terrifying lack of familiarity, as if they were simply two people on earth now, and an invisible tether between them had been severed. When he was done burying the frog, the boy took his time patting down the dirt to avoid looking up. His father told him to think a while about what he'd done and walked off. The boy crouched, listening to the receding footsteps as tears came on and the loamy smell of rotting leaves invaded his nose. 
He stood and looked at the river. Dusk stole quickly through the valley. After a while, he understood he'd been there longer than his father had intended, but he couldn't bring himself to head to the car, because he feared that when he got there, he'd see that his father no longer recognized him as his own. He couldn't imagine anything worse than that, so he tossed rocks into the river and waited for his father to come get him. When one of his throws gave none of the splashing sound he'd gotten used to hearing, and a loud croak rose up suddenly behind him, he ran, spooked, to find his father leaning against the hood with a foot up on the fender, looking as if he would have waited all night for him, now adjusting his cap and opening the door to drive them home. He wasn't lost to him yet. So tell me about writing that. Well, it took me a long time to write that in that form. I went through over a hundred drafts of that of that page. Part of the difficulty was in, in getting the tone right because I I wanted it to have a, something of a mythical quality and yet to be still personal and human and recognizably uh, about individuals. I, I was also working with pronouns that presented difficulties because uh, there were overlapping he's and him's, and uh, that was part of my intention was in creating a confusion of those pronouns. But once, even if you're deciding to do that on purpose, it still presents the issue of the confusion of them at times. I wanted this to stand in something as something of the archetypal father-son story, a kind of father-son pairing that could exist for time immemorial. A son does something wrong and a father is there, if the father is responsible, uh, to check this this boy. And... Uh, and provide a vision for what should have been, and discipline uh, to you know to check this uh, lack of empathy, and uh, and to to be a father. I think that's part of the story of that prologue is what it is to be a father, what it is to be to be there and to be reliable. Um, and uh, the story of the book, in some ways, is a story of increasing empathy and the growth toward empathy. For Connell and for others, um, but in this, so in the story, in this, in this prologue, I wanted to suggest the possibility that this, if you read this book, that this, you know, when you come back to this, if you read this again, that maybe you think this is Ed and Connell, or maybe it's possible, if I've done my job right, that you think that this is Connell and his future son in this case. Although we, at the end of the book, I took pains to make Connell not be wondering about a boy or a girl; he's just thinking about a child. It's very possible that this might be a jump forward in time, and that this is something of a, a fulfillment of the promise that we have at the end of the book of Connell having a child of his own. Um, that there's a kind of explosion of temporality in the book here, where it's possible that we're looking at a moment in the future um, without knowing that we are. But I also wanted it to be possible that it's simply Ed and Connell. But I think what I'm saying is I wanted this to stand in for all fathers and sons, if I could. Um, and uh, for this this destruction of this frog to be a moment where this boy might just be on the verge of being excommunicated from from man from the family of man, but in in fact he he is not. He is just he is he is kind of introduced into the complexity of adulthood, and uh, uh, and you see it I think as a moment where he's never going back. Where do you write? I spent a lot of time writing this particular book in two places, uh, at the kitchen table in our old apartment and at Paragraph, a workspace for writers in Manhattan, uh, where you get a, an inexpensive uh, monthly membership that is uh, basically like a gym membership. You can come and go uh, whenever you want and write even late at night there. So I would sit at this desk. It wasn't a 
my own desk. It was just first come, first serve. And uh, it was extremely um, productive because it's extremely quiet. And yet there's the typing of other people and uh, some ambient noise. And then the other place, obviously, was home. I was I would write late at night at the kitchen table. And the first, uh, in the, the last two years of writing this book, when my kids were around, uh, I was home a lot. So I would just be up late at night anyway with them. And uh, I would just be sitting at the table. We had a, a one-bedroom apartment. And uh, the kids were in the bedroom. My wife and I were in the, the living room, so to speak. I guess it was like a studio. And our, it was relatively small. So on the other side of the room, we had our, our table. Um, and that's where I would sit and write. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, it's not hard to find uh, ways away from writing when you have kids, young kids. My kids will be four in March. I have these twins. And so um, they don't really, uh, they don't understand the world as oriented toward whether I have writing time or not. I mean, interestingly enough, they do. Um, but but, uh, but that you know, there's so much to do with them that presents itself so readily that you're not necessarily looking for reasons to get away from writing. You're, you're just sort of actually just managing all the time away from writing that you have. That's, that's really kind of forced on you. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. I show it to my wife first. Uh, and uh, I show it to her late and reluctantly um, because she's tough. But I also know she's, she's terrific. She's a terrific reader. Um, I have a couple friends I show it to as well. Uh, and, but I also show it to them late. I mean, this book, uh, we are not ourselves. I kept to myself for the longest time. Uh, nobody read a word of it for ever and ever because I could see its flaws for so much of the time so readily that it would have made very little sense to give it to anybody. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, I dealt with it implicitly by, you know, for all the years I was writing this book by kind of giving it to myself. If you were pretty, uh, gimlet eyed about how flawed something is. Um, you don't need to fetishize getting rejected. I don't think because I think you can give yourself plenty of it for a long, for a long time. And it was a difficult bunch of years when I was writing this book because I had no, there was no ratification of my labors. I didn't have an agent. I wasn't publishing things because I wasn't writing stories. I, there was nothing to, I, I, I could point to and say, this is my life as a writer. It was it, for all the world's, uh, you know, knowledge, it was a total hobby. And so, um, you know, the, the, I guess the, uh, the rejection I was feeling was, was, was probably a, a deeper one than, you know, oh, this story isn't getting published. It was, I wonder if this life will actually work out or not. And, uh, uh, so I just had to eventually kind of make peace with that. And, and, and when it came to it, uh, when I was done, then I would face the possibility of real rejection or not when I would submit the manuscript to agent. And what is your favorite word? I think ocean. Ocean is probably my favorite word because it's so beautiful. The sound of it is so beautiful. And it, it's inescapably uh, uh, shot through with uh, you know, the images that it calls to mind. It's one of those words that I think it can, it can make you happy on a, on a cold, wintry day to think of the ocean because you think of the beach, because you think of the sun, but you also just think of all this life in the world teeming, this this teeming ocean, Uh, but the sound of it, ocean. I love those two syllables. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Matthew Thomas, author of the novel We Are Not Ourselves. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. 
The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.